Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. It is it is science and we are completely lost, aren't we all? <laughs> I don't know where I am. Send help quickly. That's right. Claire, what are you going to tell us about today? Well, Chris, um, today I have quite a disgusting story about um, an increase in incidence of an awful thing called a Beruli ulcer. Now, um, regular listeners of the show will remember this from last year when we talked about the Beruli ulcer. But there has been an update as to potentially how this um, fairly disgusting thing is transmitted. And it is possibly um, a cuddly marsupial. This is the flesh-eating bacteria, isn't it? This is the flesh-eating bacteria. Did I not mention that? Oh, my goodness. You That's the most important I mean, Everyone part. knows what a Baruli ulcer is, but, you know. Yeah, well, <laughs> if they don't, they didn't before, then they will after this segment. Ah, oh, something to look forward to there. Stu, what are you? Well, doing? I'm going to be talking about rare earth metals, which is not a kind of cross between folk music and heavy metal or anything like that. It's actually... <laughs> <laughs> a particular group of elements, but they're actually super important. And in fact, probably a lot of people listening will be listening on devices that rely on rare earth metals. Interesting. This has been a new discovery, I think. Along that yeah, there's there's a there's a bit of uh, there's a bit of controversy about supply because um, one particular country has a monopoly pretty much on rare earth metal production. So a lot of other countries are a little bit upset about it. But I'll explain that in a bit more detail later in the show. Oh. I can't wait to hear all about it. And speaking of superpowers, I am no, I'm going to Queensland. No, I am I am talking about uh water contamination which happened around the country, in particular the um the water contamination in Bundaberg. You may have seen on the news, um the PFAS or PFAS chemicals contaminating the water supply. I'm just gonna take a quick look at what these chemicals are and yeah, why people should be concerned about them. And where did they come from? Where do they come from indeed? Ah, well we'll find out. Hopefully, on with the show. So, something not for the faint stomach today. I'm going to be talking about a flesh-eating bacteria. And that's something we've talked about on the show before. Yeah, we did. We spoke to Tim Stanier last year from University of Melbourne. Uh, he was saying... You know, probably probably don't panic about it. You can treat this thing. Uh, it's not really that big of a deal. But apparently, it's it seems to be getting a bit worse. Yeah, well, it's in the news again. This flesh-eating bacteria, um, you might have heard about it because there have been reports of an epidemic. And specifically, it's called a Beruli ulcer. And that's what you were talking to Tim about last year. Yeah, yeah that's right. And they, they actually used to – there was an outbreak – in the 40s, I believe, Tim was telling me about, and they called it the Bansdale ulcer because that's where it was centred around. They had a little epidemic in the in back in the 40s. Really? Yeah. So wait, hang on, where is this? Where is this current outbreak that is seen to be concerning us all at the moment? Well, it's on the rise in the world, but specifically in Australia. 
And it has been noted in a paper that's just been released in the Medical Journal of Australia um, that it is on the rise and it is getting worse in parts of Australia, specifically in Victoria. So it is. So this ulcer is it's an infectious disease and it's cause, it causes severe destructive lesions of skin and soft tissue. So, I mean, it's, it, it isn't nice. It's not, it's not very, very nice at all. The offending microbe is called the Mycobacterium ulcerans. And, yeah, so the Medical Journal of Australia has experts in the field calling for an urgent scientific response, and that's because we've seen a large spike of people getting this awful disease. So, yeah, I mean, what does an epidemic in Australia look like? According to the lead author, Associate Professor Daniel O'Brien, we're seeing cases rapidly increasing number, but also occurring in new geographic regions. So, for example, two years ago, there were 182 new cases reported in Australia, which was higher than ever before. And then last year, this jumped again to 236 reported cases. So that's an extra 51% on the year before. So it's getting higher and higher. Yeah, so that's why they're now reporting it and they're now also publishing this information just to get the word out there that this is something that's um, okay. that people need to be aware of. So is it yeah, so is is it all across Victoria? Is that what we need to be where anyone in Victoria needs to be worried or what is the situation? There are some specific places that that um that the reports and that the diagnoses are coming from. Mornington Peninsula and the Bellarine Peninsula, but in 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 pockets, like not the whole of the peninsula. Oh, okay. In specific areas. So um, yeah, when we when we talked to Tim last year, it was pretty much confined to the Mornington Peninsula and somehow it's gotten from there to the other side of Port Phillip Bay, which is a fair distance away. Yeah, well, I mean, the mind boggles as to how it got from one side of the peninsula to the other. Yeah, how does the bacterium catch the ferry across? <laughs> indeed, indeed, because there is a ferry for non-Victorian, non-Melbourne-based people. There's a ferry that goes from one side of Port Phillip Bay to the other. Yeah. And I mean, I guess a bacteria crosses that ferry via... Things with legs, like humans and animals. And yeah, I guess I guess if someone infected, sort of went from one side to the other and then got bitten by a mosquito or something, then it could spread around that mm. way. Or maybe a mosquito caught the ferry. So, do we know how it's transmitted? Is it is it via mosquitoes? Or? We we don't know how it's transmitted yet. That's one of the main issues with this disease. But, I mean, let's just back up a little bit. I want to give you a bit more of a gruesome overview of it, if that's okay. Please, make, please, (laughs) yeah, make me ill. All right, okay, okay, good, good, good. So let me flesh out the details for you, Chris. The first sign of infection of the Beruli ulcer, it's usually like a painless lump on the skin. So something like um, an insect bite. But, of course, it is a lot more than that. It's a slow-moving infection, so it burrows into a layer of fat that's between your skin and um, and the lining of your muscles. And it's there that the infection takes hold. It spreads sideways through the body, destroying tissue, eating tissue along the way. And then eventually, oh, Chris, hold on, it erupts back through the skin to form an ulcer. So it's a really nasty, nasty bacteria. Are you all right? Yeah, I'm fine. Do you, do you I'm need, fine. To, do you need to go get some fresh air no, for I'm, a I'm moment? No, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. 
Yeah, um, so those with the infection often have no idea that it's taken hold until the ulcer appears. Um, and then when it does, it's super painful, as you can imagine, and it can require up to eight weeks of antibiotics. At this stage, it's treatable with antibiotics and in, with surgery in some in some cases. Luckily, in Australia, we have the antibiotics and we've got, you know, the hospitals that can deal with this. But a lot of doctors don't know what it is, right? Yeah, yeah. A lot of, I, don't think, I don't think there's been good enough... Uh ongoing training for GPs and people to recognize it when they see it. So they, they might not be giving it the right antibiotics to solve the problem. I guess it was previously uncommon, then a lot of doctors would not have seen it before and would be unfamiliar with yeah. the presentation. Yeah, absolutely. Luckily, in Victoria, we do have one of, an well, an internationally renowned expert in the ulcer, um, so Professor Paul Johnson's been studying the infection since 1993. Um, he's actually been accredited with developing a highly accurate diagnostic test for that specific species of bacteria, which is great. But obviously the challenge now is to work out how exactly it's transmitted. So have a look at the sort of, I guess, the epidemiology of it, how it's transmitted, how it's spreading, what's going on. I can see you pointing a finger, Claire. You started to... Your finger is, is, is getting up. You want to point, you want to blame someone in particular. I want to blame, well, I mean, I don't want to blame someone, but someone wants to blame. I mean, the researchers. Yeah, want who, to who blame should someone. we blame? Who should we blame? Who should we point the finger at? So, who? Now, this is the. Can we guess? This is what you should. <laughs> This is what you should know about the bacteria. It's been found um, endemic in koalas and possum communities in Australia. Um, So researchers have been making some guesses. Their main hypothesis for how the bacteria is spread is actually a combination of ringtail possums and mosquitoes. Yeah, I know. Kind of a crossbreed between... (laughs) Well, so um, their hypothesis... Cutest little mosquitoes ever. (laughs) little ringtails. They're hypothesizing that the bacteria gets into the possum population and and then it contaminates the possum feces. So then possum poo is everywhere and then mosquitoes then, I don't know, find themselves on this possum poo? Do mosquitoes do that? Or maybe the the possum feces would contaminate water in which the mosquitoes, the mosquitoes are, are breeding, breeding and then they carry the bacteria with them and then they bite on a person. That would make a lot more person. sense. He's, that, he's good, isn't yeah, he? yeah, that hypothesis makes <laughs> yeah. a lot more sense. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, and then people are picking it up from these um, mosquito feces-ridden mosquitoes. Because <laughs> they're asking these, these people, these people, have you touched any possum feces? And they go, no, it must have been a mosquito. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think there's a whole population of people who are secretly touching possum feces? I think no. I think it's possible kids could come into contact yes. with it directly. I, have I mean, poo climbing in my backyard. Yeah, I climbing mean, climbing trees and things yeah. like that. You are going to come in contact with that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. But people, so you know, with this hypothesis, um, it is still a hypothesis, and at this stage, the researchers can't confirm this method of transmission. Mm-hmm. So they're calling on urgent government funding to exhaustively examine the bacteria and the environmental factors and the possum poo and what is going on in general. But with such terrifying, disgusting alternatives, let's hope the researchers get the funding they need to work out everything that, that they need to know about the Baruli ulcer to help Australians and hopefully people struck down with the disease around the world. I'm Maggie Darren pocock and you're listening to Lost in Science on 3CR.
So I guess you guys have both got touchscreen phones, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm totally with the times. Yeah, I mean, you know, every, everyone who's got a phone who uses it with any kind of regularity pretty much has a touchscreen phone. Uh, probably got a power button and everything else is controlled by the touch-sensitive glass on the front. Mm-hmm. All your yeah. apps and all yeah. that yeah, sure. controlled that yeah. way, I mean, volume it's lot, even. It's a lot harder to control when it's cracked, that, y- yes, that glass. Yes, absolutely. Well, that touchscreen is partly made possible by particular elements called rare earth metals. Oh. Do you know what rare earth metals are? Earths that are metals that you can't find, well, that that are a little bit rare? It's actually a bit of a misnomer. So, the- hey, hey, wait, wait, wait. Are you doing one of these in your element things where you're going to cover a bunch of elements at once? Yeah. Okay. Basically because it's in the news. So, mostly rare earth metals come from China and high-tech manufacturing is dependent on the supply of rare earth metals. There's a whole lot of things that need rare earth metals. And when you're talking about rare earth metals, you're going to talk about what I will tell you exactly what they are. And you will go, oh, I never even saw them on the periodic table because they're hidden away mostly. Oh, are they? So last year, China extracted over 150,000 tonnes of rare earth ore and sold it to other people. But just recently, off the coast of Japan, the Japanese are very excited. They've found what they think is going to be a few centuries worth of rare earth metals. Rare earth bonanza. In mud. In mud? In mud. Is that better or worse? Well, it's it's complicated. So let's talk about what, what rare earth metals are. Okay. So they're a group of elements found mainly in the lanthanides group, which is why I was saying they're hidden. Yeah, the so ones down the bottom, the extra bones. Yeah, they sort of get you, get you get the little the little drop down menu with the extra yeah. ones yeah, in there. No one really takes notice. Of no those one takes ones. them seriously. No one, no one learns that when you're learning the periodic table song. No, no, I don't even know if Tom Lehrer included them in the periodic table song. Look, there are two others that aren't in the lanthanides group: is erbium and scandium. Is Eurbium, does that start with Y? Yeah, oh, Y double R. Look, they're a bit lighter and so they're higher up the periodic table, so they're not in the lanthanides group. So they're, they're similar, but they're not quite the same. They're lighter elements themselves. Okay, so they're not particularly rare, though. They're just really hard to find because of their chemical and physical properties. They basically don't form big lumps of metal in the ground that you can dig out. There's no nuggets of Erbium. There's no nuggets of erbium. So they don't form ore bodies like other metals. They have different chemical properties. And even when they do form rare earth ore bodies that can be identified, they usually consist of a whole bunch of different rare earth metals all mixed up together. So they're really hard to separate even when you do find that they're there. So why do we care? What do we use them for? So apart from the glass on touchscreens, they're used in all sorts of technological wonders going all the way back to the uh, early colour television screens and those CRT monitors depended on rare earth metals to get the particular colours and the fluorescence as the beams would hit the screen and make them fluoresce so that you could actually see a picture. Yeah, I remember sitting too close to my colour TV and looking at all the little tiny pixels of of red and green and blue Mm. and seeing how... Is what they're that, made of. That is, that is, some of those pixels were made of these rare earth metals. I sat very close to the TV. Pretty much altogether gone. And look, you're wearing glasses now. So yeah, yeah. take that as a warning, kids. Pretty much gone. Nobody really uses CRT screens anymore. They're just old technology. Very unusual to find any. But also lasers. 
high tech lasers. But not all rely lasers. on rare earth. Not all lasers, but they are used. They're used for X-ray tubes. They're used in portable X-ray machines. They're used in fluorescent lamps. They're used in LED bulbs. All wow. the LEDs that you get have got rare earth metals in them. So much of our technology. Mm. They're also used in rare earth magnets, which are the kind of magnets that they use to build hard drives in computers. So without the rare earth magnets, you don't get hard drives that have you know five terabytes of data on them that you can rare download every metals. movie that you ever wanted to see. Equals they rare can't earth use hard drives anymore, do they? <laughs> they do for large okay. capacity storage. I think a lot of people use hard drives. Really? Yeah. Okay. Not everyone's got thing. flash drives. Flash drives are also not all that reliable, just oh, okay. PS. Um, rare earth metals if you, in them. If you drop them, they can suddenly lose all of your data. Really? Yes, oh. absolutely. So, yeah, they use them in those uh, rare earth magnets, and they're also used for things like the PET scan machines, which is um, stands for... Positron emission tomography. That's the one. Mm-hmm. So the sensors that pick up the gamma rays from the positrons are rare earth magnets. Okay. Yeah. That, was, that was a really impressive um, acronym. Yeah, good recall. Yeah, mm-hmm. recall mm-hmm. there, Chris. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Yeah, I just thought they'd keep coming up with acronyms that are going to they're going to have to come up with a dog scanner soon because they've got a cat scan and a pet scan <laughs> and a dog scan. What a digital orthographic scanner! Oh, they have one already. No. Well, there you go. Hmm. <laughs> Bunny scan. So a large number of these rare earth metals were named after a Swedish village called Yturby, spelled Y T T R B Y. If I'm saying that wrong, don't blame me. Which is near where the first mineral deposits were found in the 1700s, which is where they found the rare earth metals and first described them. So among the 17 in the rare earth metals group, there's yttrium, yterbium, terbium, and erbium, which are all just slightly unimaginatively, unimaginatively named after the same town. That is pretty dull. It is pretty, pretty dull. They just couldn't think of a better name. Oh, well, they all came from this one town. We'll just have variations of the name of the town. It's a little short-sighted as well mm. to think yeah. that they're only ever going to be found in that one town. Well, I think, and also it was this one, it was mainly one guy, Arrhenius, who who discovered a lot of them and he didn't name any of them after himself, which is kind of weird. Oh, but that's like, that's a, that's a good scientist thing yeah. to do. But it also means that there wasn't any other scientists to name them after <laughs> either. So he just, oh, well, I'll just call them after the same town where I found them. That'll be fine. That won't confuse anyone ever. won't confuse anyone. <laughs> they're rare. Who's going to know? Who's going to care? <laughs> So, with their high-tech necessity for so many things, countries that are not China have been concerned that China controls 97% of the trade in rare earth metals in the world. So, there's a lot of high-tech companies and high-tech trading countries, like the US, the European Union, and Japan, who all claimed back in 2012 that China was breaking world trade rules by placing quotas on rare earth metal exports, which basically shut down all of their high-tech manufacturing uh, industries. So in 2015, China backed down and dropped their quotas on sales, but all of the trading partners who were involved with them at the time sort of thought maybe it was a good idea to start looking for their own rare earth metals all around the globe so that they could not have to be reliant on someone else controlling the supply So the discovery off Japan's coast is potentially more than 16 million tonnes of rare earth ore, which probably will be about 700 and something years supply if they get it all out of the mud, which is where it's actually trapped at the moment. It's just mud 
on the bottom of the sea. There's a big drawback to that is that most of that mud is five kilometres underwater and there isn't any technology currently capable of extracting ore from five kilometres underwater. It's not like natural gas or oil, which is a liquid and you can just sort of suck it up through a tube. There's no real way to get this mud to the surface to refine it and get the rare earth metals out. So the Japanese scientists who sort of making the claim that they've found all these rare earth metals and they've got these centuries-long supply are saying they can come up with the appropriate technology and start pulling rare earth metals up within five to ten years. I believe them. Well, we'll see. Others are not convinced. Is this the backstory to the movie Pacific Rim? (laughs) (laughs) They start pulling them up and then these giant monsters monsters come out out and then they have to build robots using up all their rare earth metals. Yeah, could could well be. So some some of the people who are doubtful that they'll start bringing them up within five to ten years point out that there are at least another 50 million tonnes of rare earth or already known around the world above ground level. The problem being that a lot of it is in Brazil and Russia, both of which are countries that the EU and the US don't really negotiate very well with at the moment. So certainly that is going to be a problem and finding a friendly source of rare earth metals that they can easily access is going to be uh, fundamental and I guess cooperation between those particular trading groups is currently more rare than the metals that they're looking for. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. Yes, you're listening to Lost in Science. My name is Chris, and some of you may have seen or read or heard on the news lately about some water contamination in the Svensson Heights area of Bundaberg, um, water contaminated with these PFAS chemicals, PFAS chemicals. Maybe you didn't pay as much attention to it as me because I am from Bundaberg. My um, my sister and my aunt and uncle all live in that area affected. So, yeah, I took a personal interest in it. and um, It has been on the news, though. I mean, you don't need yeah. to have a Google alert out on Bundaberg to have seen this. You do not have to have a Google alert for Bundaberg contamination, no. So if everyone, if people haven't heard, what is contaminated? Is it, their, is it the town drinking water supply or is it... Is it groundwater? It was. It was groundwater. It was a bore that was supplying the drinking water, okay. the tap water. Yeah. Right. So they have now diverted to another source. Okay. Is this part of the Great Artesian Basin? No, I don't believe it is. Okay. Well, maybe it's all connected. I don't know. Groundwater is one of it's one. Of, it's a mystery, Claire. It's a mystery. Um, actually, no. There are scientists who work on it, and it isn't that much of a mystery, it's a mystery to them. To me. <laughs> Just hydrogeologists yeah, yeah. would would not think so, but others yeah. might. Yeah. Physicists do. Yeah. Anyway, so what what are these chemicals? So PFAS, PFAS, it stands for per and polyfluoroalkyl substances. It's, there's a lot of mouthfuls here. It's like a family of chemicals, and they include perfluorooctane sulfonate or PFOS, perfluorooctanoic acid PFOA, and perfluorohexane sulfonate PFHXS. What are these chemicals? Oh, goodness. Um, okay, so look, the best known one is that first one, PFOS, the perfluorooctane sulfonate. Um, its chemical formula is C6HF17O3S, 
a lot of Fs in that. But what it is, it's a surfactant, all right? And it was the key ingredient in Scotchgard, which you probably heard of. This was a... Surfactants being, I mean, like soaps. Yeah, and that, that kind of stuff. Soapy yeah. type things, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Scotchgard was used to like guard fabrics and this kind of stuff. It would like repel anything you spilt on your, your Scotchgard, um, yeah, you put yeah. it on your furniture. Yeah. Stop things staining your couch, basically. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. Uh, it was made by 3M. They've since replaced this chemical in this... In, in Scotchgard. It was along with some of the other PFAS chemicals, it was also used in firefighting foams, uh, particularly those used for liquid fires. So like, you know, like a fuel fire so that, you know, you sprayed this stuff along a spread out surface of the liquid and essentially cut off its oxygen supply for the fire. Um, you may have heard of it in connection with well-known cases like the CFA training facility at Fiskville in Victoria, where there was an apparent cancer cluster people who were trained there. Um, there. Also, it's been found at numerous Air Force sites around the country, including in Williamtown near Newcastle, Oakey in Queensland, and in Northern Territory at Catherine, Adelaide River and Bachelor. But the, um, the Bundaberg contamination has affected the greatest area with up to 5,500 people living there. Uh, now, these chemicals, they're very, they're very stable chemicals, which is probably one reason why they're good for firefighting, I guess. But they also, that means they last a long time in the environment and once they're absorbed by an organism, like a, like a human being, for instance. There have been toxic effects found in animal studies, and these include things like cancer, effects on the immune system, developmental delays, uh, neonatal mortality, which is basically, you know, the... Unborn. Unborn fatality. Yes, that's right. The evidence is less clear for humans, strangely enough. There's been a lot of epidemiological studies, you know, in plenty of them, but they seem to give inconsistent results. The IARC, which is like the World Health Organization's cancer research arm, effectively, it lists, uh, it only lists one of the chemicals, it lists PFOA, and it lists it as, a, as possibly carcinogenic. So, you know, they normally jump on everything and say everything causes cancer. So, yeah, it's kind of the evidence is not as slim in humans. Because the next one up is even, is probable, and so that's not even onto that list yet. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But look, it's officially considered toxic, because it's toxic in the animal studies, it's considered environmental pollutant, because it's so long-lasting in the environment, and certainly, you know, governments around the world and the companies that make them treat them as if they're serious kind of toxic environmental pollutants, but at the same time, those governments put out the message that the, the harm for them to human health hasn't been proven. It's almost as if they have, they have a, you know, something, a stake here in this. Uh, yeah. That's the Bundaberg. They haven't even said, you know, where the contamination came from, what the levels actually were. Um, they said that there were levels of PFOS and PFHXS above the draft Australian drinking water guideline value, but they didn't really say what that is or how much above. Um, the state government is offering free blood tests through the hospital, local hospital, but, you know, as no one knows what is a safe or dangerous level and there's no way to get rid of it anyway, there's not clear what the testing will actually do or anything like that. Uh, so it's really hard to know what to think in this situation, you know. Um, like I said, they've, they've redirected, they've got a different source of water now, but as it bioaccumulates, it's the historical usage that matters, and no one knows how long that could have been, because you know, the airport isn't too far away from there, but no one seems to have been able to say this is when it was first used there, or, yeah, it's, it's a, lot of, a lot of unknowns. Yeah, I guess, you know, the message they're putting out is not to panic, because the harm is certainly not proven, but um, it is one of those ones where it's kind of suspicious that no one is actually saying much. And it is, as the other cases around the country have shown, it's one where you really need to hold the powers that be to account. And that is it for another episode of Lost in Science. You've heard all about flesh-eating bacteria. Mm. Yum. Uh, we've heard about the, those rare earths, all named after the same Swedish town. Yeah, yeah, not very creative, but, yeah. but very important. Yes, and we've heard the disturbing tale of PFAS and... Yeah, and I guess, you know, that this, the message there is, uh, what, what do we say, Claire? If you are concerned, go see your doctor. 
Now, Lost in Science, it is recorded in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne, as across Australia, the Community Radio Network, with the generous support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We'd love you to get in touch with us. Please send us an email at lostinsci at gmail.com or message us on Facebook. You can like our page, Lost in Science, on 3CR, or you can tweet at us on Twitter. We are just Lost in Science 1, I think, at Lost in Science 1. Or find our podcast on any podcast service. If you find us on iTunes, please give us a good rating and review, because what that does, it'll list our rankings in the searches so other people can find us, which is a great thing. Because we want to share the love, don't we? The love is what we want to share. Um, or you can just find us on the radio. Well, at the same time, next week, Claire, Stu, and Chris will get Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.